Welcome to the Leverage to Scale show. I'm Amber Vilhauer, founder and CEO of LeverageToScale.com, brought to you by NGNG Enterprises, standing for No Guts, No Glory. We work with purpose-driven business owners to develop their online platform and scale their influence. We believe that you have the opportunity to positively change the world one relationship at a time. Stick around to the end of the show in about 20 minutes and I'll reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing marketing podcasts. Let's go. Welcome Leverage to Scale listeners to this episode. Uh, I'm Dan, I'm your host, I'm your guide for this conversation and I am stoked to bring you someone who is an entrepreneur, who is the founder and CEO of Aqua Partners, Paul Quatracasis. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thank you. Good to so, be here. Uh, it's good to have you here. Um, so, I'm curious to know a little bit more about who Paul is and also who, who Aqua Partners is and who you serve. So, wherever mm-hmm. you want to kind of start without going all the way back to like the day you were born, maybe. But uh, yeah. <laughs> tell me a little bit about sure. you, Paul, and about Aqua Partners. Sure. I am, uh, I'm, a, I'm a husband and a father. We've got three little children uh, that I am currently living with at home near uh, Maidenhead in England. Right. Uh, and that is proving challenging, as I'm sure uh, many people can relate, uh, as they are in either online school or they're out of school, causing havoc in the heat. Um, so, you know, that is, that is proving to be uh, a challenge these days. But, but my background and my business is in finance and specifically investment banking as an entrepreneur. So uh, I left my training ground, I call it GE Capital, in New York back in 1991 and moved to London and joined a firm called Arkwright, which was formed by 5X Bain and Company Partners. And I was <clears throat> working there in London for, uh, for a couple of years and my boss and I decided to, to split out of Arkwright and set up our own firm called Arc Associates back in 1993. So I never looked back. That was really the mm-hmm. beginning of the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, and it's been quite a ride since then. Today, I'm running a firm that I founded in 2010 called Aqua Partners, where we focus exclusively on the, we call it TMT sector, technology, media, telecom, digital sectors. So does that mean that you help people invest in that or you help yeah, sorry. them So we, 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 as investment bankers, we fundamentally advise on M&A transactions, and it tends to be uh, certainly from a historical perspective, founders, entrepreneurs, venture capital back companies, very often PE back companies, institutional investors, uh, any stakeholders uh, in tech companies that either want a full exit or a partial exit or maybe looking to raise capital. So that business is both, we call it M&A advisory as well as capital raising. And then three years ago, three and a half years ago, we set up a second business uh, which is focused more on the buy side that we call techquisition. Now that is addressing the concerns that large corporates, non-tech corporates have about <clears throat> how they are being disrupted by tech companies and what they can do uh, as a result, not necessarily in-house what they're already doing from an innovation perspective, but what can they do by investing in and acquiring tech companies to go faster and be better and stronger. And that's quite an exciting business that's going very well at the moment. Sounds interesting. You, like you've got a heck of a journey then and some experience in this entrepreneurial world. And, and so I'm excited to hear some of these answers then, um, the ups and downs, that kind of stuff. 
so let's go back to the reason then that you started your own business. So you went, you got out of these corporate environments, you started a business, and then you went and started your own business from there even. What's mm-hmm. the reason behind starting uh, your current venture? Uh, the current venture, <clears throat> which, which started in 2010, okay. was a restructuring of my previous firm where we had, I had founded that company uh, called Allegro Capital back in 2003, <clears throat> had grown it myself for the first three years or so. I also set up a hedge fund at the same time. So just to wind back the clock, um, we might, some of us anyway, remember something called the dot-com boom yeah. and the dot-com yeah. bust. Back in 99, 2000, we had tech and, and internet companies that were going through the roof. And if you thought valuations were high today on a relative basis, you know, go back to 99 and 2000 and you'd be frankly yeah. shocked by, by what, you'd, uh, what you'd see. So we had that do, uh, boom and bust. And a few years after that in 2003, and by the way, we did pretty well during the difficult years from 01 to 03. But in 2003, we decided it was time to restructure the firm. And I set up a firm called Allegro Capital, which was doing pretty much the same thing, M&A Advisory. Uh, we also would make uh, selected investments in companies. And we decided we would be cross-industry, not just TMT, although it ended up being mainly TMT. But I also set up a hedge fund at the same time with a partner. And I ran those two firms for, for three years before I decided to shut down the hedge fund and go exclusively on, on the M&A advisory. And the reason for that is that in, in we, we tend to have short memories. In 2003, at least I didn't know if tech was coming back. Um, it was that bad. And we were still early uh, in technology. So <clears throat> there, there weren't as, you know, anywhere near as many companies as today. This is, remember, pre-iPhone. Um, and, and, and I didn't really know for sure if tech was going to come back, uh, in the same way. And, and the hedge fund was, was focused on special situations and spinoffs of companies. So really different strategy. And, uh, by 2005, 2006, we sold, for example, uh, a UK based company called Gumtree to eBay. And we spent a week out with the eBay, uh, senior executive staff, M&A strategy staff. And I saw web 2.0, it's back. And, uh, we closed a few more deals, Shortly thereafter, and that's when I said, okay, tech is back, 2006, I recruited a few more partners, and we grew that firm <clears throat> over the next 18 months to 35 people, and, uh, and we were on a roll, and tech was back. And I think the difference today is that if and, well, let me say when we have the next crash, just a question of, of when, yeah. um, the tech companies will take a hit on price for sure. Nobody knows how much, whether it's 30, 50. 50, 80%, it will be a heavy hit. But I can tell you one thing for sure today, which I wasn't sure of in 2003, is that tech isn't going anywhere, right? It's not going anywhere. It is not going to be affected um, apart from price levels and some companies that don't make it through the next uh, correction or crash. But it's going to make it through whatever hurricane, market crash, hyperinflation is going to hit us because Technology is growing exponentially. The companies are growing exponentially. That's both the existing companies, and we've seen that with big tech. Now with Apple's uh, market cap approaching nearly $2 trillion, and same thing we're seeing with, with Amazon and, and the other big tech companies. The unicorns, the private companies value, valued at a billion dollars or more, they continue to grow, and there are more and more that are forming every year. And then beneath that unicorn level, there are hundreds of thousands of companies being formed and being funded with tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's a reason for that. Yes, we could just say it's capital and it's not necessarily 
profit or cash flow or even success. It, it's capital, it's money. And perhaps one would argue we have false markets today being created by this government stimulus. But you can't deny that these companies are forming, they are raising money, they are growing, and they're penetrating essentially every industry. And that's why we have something called fintech and retail tech and even wine tech and you name it, name the industry or niche sector yeah. and put tech after it. Um, and I find that extremely exciting. Uh, and and we've, we've turned the corner now, and I, I call this the, you know, the, the corner uh, that we've turned towards singularity, which is where the, uh, the intelligence of a machine or computer exceeds that of a, of a human. And, and it's, you know, as, as Ray Kurzweil will tell you, probably not much more than 12 to 15 years away. Hmm. So we're on the race to the singularity, and every single industry is being disrupted in a major way. And I'm more excited today than I was, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I started out in the, the tech sector because it's just amazing what's happening in terms of the disruption, the change, and the speed at which this change is happening. And, you know, certainly for entrepreneurs, you want to be leading the charge. You want to be in the front end. You want to be able right. to adapt to this change because if you're, if you're not in a position of adapting and you think your current strength is going to save the day, then you know, I'd say you need to be careful. Because adaptation is more relevant than ever. Oh yeah. Well, and, and it's what's interesting for me, anyways. When you said you weren't sure if tech was coming back, I was thinking, well, of course it's going to come back. It like, it keeps coming back, and and then you come back to this is why it's going to keep coming back. It's like, oh, okay. So back then, and I can remember those days, the the bust, mm-hmm. and, you know, everything. Um, I guess I didn't think about the fact that we weren't sure if it was going to come back. But now it was, you know, it's, it, it's a, it was an interesting lesson uh, was most, most crashes. You, you reach this state of maximum pessimism. And I think it was Templeton who, who said that's really the best time to invest is in a state of maximum pessimism. It's always hard to know when that max point or the bottom is hit. But, you know, it's some of the best investment advice you'll ever hear is when everybody thinks it's, it's over, that's the time to make very careful, selective choices. Uh, I remember back in March 2009, I was waiting personally for the Dow to go below 7,000. That was just my number. And when it went below 7,000, it was around March. I said, that's it. You know, it is, it is so bad. It is melting down. And we, again, have short memories. We forget that every bank in the West was, eff- it was effectively bankrupt. Yeah. Um, I looked at the list of the 10 very best companies that I could think of from a value perspective, not necessarily price because price was, was depressed across the board, uh, for, frankly, all assets, not just equities. And I looked at the 10 best companies, which at the time uh, I remember being GE and, and Microsoft and Intel, and I, and I invested, invested then simply based on that one rule. I mean, it's very often we find in business that you know, it's the simple things that are the most important things. And, and Warren Buffett uh, is a hero of mine who will often boil down some of the most complex concepts to very basic kind of isms, truism. You know, one of them being uh, the first rule is never lose money. The second rule is never forget rule number one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I guess this is, this is what I would say if I've learned anything over my time to other entrepreneurs and investors is, is, to, um, is to embrace change, embrace cycles, and embrace the opportunities that come with market corrections and market crashes. We've been through this pandemic, which has been horrible for so many people and for many companies, uh, and for the people who are employed by those companies, the people who have funded and grown those companies. But let's not forget, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, that's the ticket you buy when you 
choose to become an entrepreneur. It's not all roses. Sure. It's, you know, if you believe everything you read in the press about the success, success stories, you, you know, you're going to be surprised because it's, it's not easy for any, any entrepreneur. So when we have the, the crash, and I'd say for those entrepreneurs in tech, in digital and anything internet, uh, you, you probably have done fairly well at the moment, depending on what sector you're in. Uh, if you're serving hospitality or you're serving airlines, mm-hmm. that may be a different case. But, yeah. um, you know, these are, these are times when we learn lessons. And by the way, some of the best companies are formed in down times like this. So there's, there's many ways that one can look at this. Yeah. And, and Paul, I love that you said, you know, it's not all, you know, un- unicorns, rainbows and sunshine, right? Um, you have, we have those hard moments, those times as entrepreneurs where we throw up our hands, we've hit rock bottom, whatever it is. What are some hard moments or biggest challenges that you've faced as an entrepreneur over all these years? Uh, that I have faced in my, in my history. Yeah. <laughs> in my time. There's gotta be a few, right? <laughs> well, probably the, the one that, well, the first one, because we were on quite a ride in my first firm, the one I mentioned that we set up in 1993 called Arc Associates. From 1993 to 1999-2000, you know, they, they, it's very often like this where it takes a while and then you get momentum and it, that hockey stick actually, you know, it is real. It does happen. Um, and we started out the first couple of years slowly, but we built momentum where we chipped away, chip away, chip away. That's what you have to do. Two steps forward, one step back. Keep your head down. Be tenacious. Keep going. Do not give up if you believe in what you're doing and you have enough customers, even if it's only a few, who tell you you're doing a great job and that they love what you do. You keep going. If you don't have any customers or you don't have customers who, who you know, are telling, telling you that you're doing great work, then you need to rethink things. But, you know, we kept going and then it all started clicking. And, uh, and by the time 1999, 2000 came around, uh, it was, you know, it was an incredibly fun and successful ride. And uh, we were... Uh, we were having fun every single day. We were making money. Our clients loved us. We were closing almost every deal we touched. We had a great team. Uh, and the team is, is critical. If there's anything I've learned uh, after all these years is that, and, and it's taken me a long time to learn it, even though I've, I've lived through it myself, <laughs> is that your people are your most important thing. A friend of mine sent me a, a video last night of an interview between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates that was done, I think, in 2007. Fascinating. And of course, they built up to it with some previous interviews that had done in the previous years. And you know what they say? You know, they say themselves, the most important thing are the people. They said, look, we're sitting on this stage only because of the people that we were lucky enough to have on our team. And I, I you know, that is just the most important thing. And, and, and I'd say, you know, the sooner you could hire a, a director of talent management or HR, the better, even if you've only got five people in your company. Mm-hmm. So back in, um, in 2000, we were on this phenomenal ride, and then we had the, the crash where markets, tech markets dropped by 80% or 85%. There are probably a few people on, you know, on this call listening that, that um, you know, have never seen that or experienced anything like that. 2008, 2009 was not that bad from the extreme perspective in terms of tech. We, you know, we didn't have an 80%, 90% hit, and many companies that were worth billions of dollars back then went bankrupt very quickly. So we had to adapt. Um, and we went from 45 people in our firm down to about 15 pretty quickly, uh, which was painful, but we did it. Uh, we had a plan B and we had uh, many plans that we had to shelve. So we had a 300 million euro private equity fund uh, that we were just on the cusp of launching. We had two anchor investors for 25 million euros each. We were literally weeks away from launching that. Um, and then the share price of one of our anchor investors 
dropped from 80 euros a share to five euros a share overnight. Oof. And this is a multi-billion, wow. multi-billion euro company. So we had, you know, we had to shelve that. We had many investment projects we had to shelve, but we kept going. And the core team, you know, what we did was, okay, what, what, is, what is the one thing we do have? We have people, we have team, we have ideas. We sat in our boardroom for two days straight. We didn't do anything. We just shut down and said, let's all sit around the table and brainstorm. What can we do in a market that we've known and loved uh, that is no longer, you know, existent? So there are no investors. There are no acquirers. There are no companies that are good companies that really want to sell because the valuation gap was extreme. You know, this bid offer spread was incredibly wide. There really wasn't anything to do. Um, our normal business was just completely uh, gone. And that, by the way, was true for just about all of our competitors and our peers. There was really nothing to do. There was no deal market left. But we came up with a few ideas. Uh, one of them was some, there were about 90 software companies trading on the London Stock Exchange at a significant discount to their net cash value. So, for example, uh, you know, company ABC may have had a market cap of, of, of 30 million pounds, but it had 40 million pounds of cash, net cash. And it wasn't losing more than 10 million a year. So we decided to have a look at that. And we took some time. It was one of the junior guys, I think, who made the suggestion. We narrowed down the list from 90 to 10 companies. We did due diligence on those 10. And we decided out of those 10, there were five companies that were just no-brainer from an investment perspective after doing due diligence. And we formed a little fund of our own with 10 people. We put up our own capital. We set up a fund, which is a managed account. And we took up to 3% in each one of those five companies. And then we went to friends of ours who are running family offices or, or private equity firms. And we said, look, um, here's why we have taken the positions we have. And uh, we suggest that you would take 10%, call an EGM. These would be the suggested resolutions. And this is how much you can probably make. And by the way, you'll help save the company. And in three out of the five cases, they said, you know, not only are we going to take 10%, we'll just buy the whole company. So we did pretty well, um, actually, making uh, a, over 100% return in each one of those five within six months. In some cases, did better, also taking M&A fees on the deals that were done, and in some cases, even a carry. So uh, I give that example because when things look really black and bleak after a boom, and then you have a total bust, and you think, you know, it's over, um, it's never over unless you want it to be over or you allow it to be over. You've got to tap into your imagination or ingenuity and your tenacity and tap into your people because even your most junior people have ideas if you can kind of pull it out of them. They have different perspectives from you if you're running a firm you're leading in. Um, and perspective is sometimes all we have. And it's the, one of the most precious things is perspective. It's why we like diversity in companies. You know, yes, diversity is important for a lot of reasons we talk about in the press, but actually as a business leader and an owner and an investor, I like diversity because I value different perspectives. As hard as it is sometimes to listen to people's views that are very different, but there's often sometimes nothing more valuable than that. So that's something that I'm, I'm quite proud of that, you know, we overcame, um, you know, near disaster. Uh, we also, at that time, uh, we, we, we did the, the Inmarsat buyout. So, um, when there were no deals to do, one of the things we, we, we sat back and brainstormed about was, well, what deals could be done? And we decided the only deals that could possibly be done in a nuclear winter, which, what it, which is what that was, and which, by the way, I think, unfortunately, we're going to have again in the next couple of years, what were deep, heavy cash flow deals. And the satellite operators back then, Inmarsat, Intelsat, New Sky Satellite, Utilsat, et cetera, 
had operating margins that were extremely high, EBITDA margins of 80, 85%, operating margins of 40, 50%. And they were held by telecom operators. Inmarsat, for example, was owned by about 80 different telecom operators around the world because they started out as you know, NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And uh, make a long story short, I talked to Telenor, who was the largest shareholder about their stake. We ended up uh, going directly to the CEO and, and CFO of Inmarsat, and suggesting that instead of their IPO, which we didn't think was possible in 2001 and 2002, they consider a buyout. Um, at the same time, we were talking to several private equity firms and credit to Apex and Premira. They hired us to advise them on uh, on acquiring Imarsat. And we were able to advise them on a $1.5 billion acquisition of Imarsat that closed in 2003. So it was in the doldrums of nuclear winter that we were able to, to get this deal done. And again, it simply came down to the belief that you know that we that there was always there's always something to do there's always a way to course correct there's always a way to pivot there's always a way to adapt um if you let yourself down and become depressed and believe it's all over then nothing's going to happen um but if you do not let yourself down and you continue to believe well there's got to be something that going on in the world that relates to what we can offer and you make that pivot and the correction and bring your people along with it, or sometimes your people will bring you along with the idea yeah, yeah. and go with it, then you can make it happen. But you know, having said that, you know, we, we tried something similar in 0809, um, similar, not the same thing, and, and we couldn't get it done. And uh, the two reasons we couldn't get it done was 0809 was, a, was more of a V-curve, so things came back fairly quickly, so prices didn't stay depressed for as long. But I also didn't think we had the same team makeup. Um, I think the reason we had quite a lot of success from 2001 to 2003 was it was the team makeup and the chemistry uh, where we just had ideas mm. firing all the time, constantly yeah. discussing ideas. And it was always in a very positive, encouraging, constructive way. It was a little bit different in 0809, partly because every asset class was obliterated. I mean, it was it was it was a nuclear winter across the board. The prices weren't depressed as far as they were in 08, in 01, but it was uh, it was pretty broad and wide, and and yeah. we just couldn't we couldn't we couldn't react as quickly. And so I guess the lesson there is, um, if you're going to do it, you know, move fast, rely on your team, trust your team, um, listen to them. And, and believe that it's possible and always work together as a team to make it happen. Yeah. Man, so much good stuff there, Paul. Great, great advice, great insight. Uh, thanks for the, the vulnerability of, <clears throat> of sharing those lessons too, because that can't be easy. Um, well, great conversation, Paul. So much wisdom for entrepreneurs, um, so much experience to pull from, from what you've done. Uh, you, you've got a book, Go Tech or Go Extinct. Mm-hmm. So listeners, check that out. Um, your website, Aqua Partners, there's two A's in Aqua. A well three A's in Aqua. Um, <laughs> yeah. So A Q U A A dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and and look up Paul Quatracasas online uh, in social media. That's Quatracasas with a C. Um, Paul, thanks so much for being a part of uh, Leverage sure. to Scale, my friend. This was a lot my of good pleasure. stuff. So thanks, man. Great, good to talk. Thanks, Dan. so much for listening to the Leverage to Scale show. If you are a purpose-driven business owner or professional who would like to have a global impact by being interviewed on our show, please visit leveragetoscale.com 
forward slash guest. Now, if you got something out of this interview, would you do me a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on your favorite social network. If you do that, just be sure to tag us with a hashtag leverage to scale. Each month, we scour Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and pick one winner from each platform. What do you win? We are going to promote you and your business to all of our social media fans totally free. Next, if you thought this was a valuable use of your time, please support the show and give us a thumbs up or a rating and review. We promise to read it all and take action. I believe that every person has a message that can positively impact the world. Your feedback helps us fulfill that mission. And while you're at it, hit that subscribe button. My name is Amber Vilhauer, and I thank you so much for your time. Let's connect on your favorite social channels. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being a part of the No Guts, No Glory movement.